verse 21. Whom heaven must receive until the times of restoration of all things. Some people teach that that is a, a reference to the fact that there's coming a time when everything is going to be restored back to God. We're talking everything, even the demons and Satan. Everyone goes to heaven. At one point, these people believe it's called universalism. And they believe that even if a person dies and goes to hell, it's not permanent. They'll just go there until they're purified. And finally, everything is going to be restored back to God. Well, that's more wishful thinking than it is biblical truth. I mean, the Bible is very clear that there is a place called hell and that it's eternal. In Matthew chapter 25, verse 41, Jesus talked about those, the sheep and the goats, those that are God's people, those that have received Christ are the sheep. They'll enter into eternal life. Those that have rejected Christ will enter into everlasting fire. And the same words in the scriptures that talk about God being eternal, heaven being eternal, are the same word that is used for hell being eternal. So there is no such thing as someday the devil and the demons and everyone is going to be restored back to God. That just isn't biblical. The restoration of all things really isn't talking about the human soul. It's talking about the nation of Israel. The nation of Israel entered into a covenant with God through Abraham. Uh, he's going to mention that in a moment. Now, there are different covenants in the Bible. There is the Adamic covenant, there is the Noahic covenant, there's the Mosaic covenant, and there's the Abrahamic covenant, to name just a few. Some of these were conditional, based on things Israel had to do. If Israel upheld their part in the covenant, then God would fulfill his part. In other words, God says, look, if you go ahead and do these things, obey me and such and such, then I will do these things. I will bless you and these other things. It's a, it was a, called a conditional or a bilateral covenant, a two-party covenant. They had a responsibility, and then God would fulfill his part. There are other covenants in the scriptures that are unconditional or unilateral. They're one-party contracts, whereas God just promised to give Israel something apart from anything they did or didn't do. The Abrahamic covenant is one of those promises. It is unconditional. It is unilateral. And all you got to do is go back to Genesis chapter 15 when God entered into the covenant with Abraham and his descendants after him. And how that Abraham took animals and cut them in two and laid the pieces on the ground. The word covenant comes from a Hebrew word to cut. That's how they ratified a covenant. They would take an animal, kill it uh, by dividing it in half, lay the parts on the ground, and two people would, would pass through the animal parts. That would be a bilateral covenant. But as Abraham, I should say, cut the animals in, in half and laid them on the ground, God caused Abraham to fall into a deep sleep. And God, in the form of a smoking oven and burning torch, the Shekinah glory, passed through those animal pieces, signifying it was a unilateral covenant. There are people today that say that Israel forfeited the promises of God given to them as God's covenant people because they rejected and killed their own Messiah. And there are those that believe that God has, has actually replaced Israel with the church. And now we are spiritual Israel. We enter into all the promises God made to Israel. There is not a real literal kingdom coming anymore because Israel forfeited that. It's a spiritual thing. And no, that is not true. God says to the prophet Jeremiah, the day that you can, the sun stops shining or the, you know, that you can, you know, the stars and all, that's the day I'll break my covenant with Israel. It's eternal. It's an eternal covenant. 
Now, it's just a side note. There is another covenant that we read about in the New Testament. It's called the Everlasting Covenant. That is a covenant that we entered into when we received Jesus as our Lord and Savior. Who died to ratify that covenant? Jesus did. He shed his blood. It's a one-party contract. Jesus promises to give all who will just put their faith in him. Faith is not a work. And so if we put our faith in Christ, we enter into this unconditional unilateral covenant where God has not promised to give us eternal life. Oh, but we have to be faithful. No, it's not a bilateral covenant. Are you telling me we shouldn't be faithful? Of course not. I'm just saying it's not dependent on my faithfulness. It's dependent upon the faithfulness of God to fulfill his word to those who have put their faith in Christ. It's a unilateral covenant. Now that's a blessing to hear that. Because if it was based on me, in any way, shape, or form, forget about it. Uh, like when the children of Israel were entering into the Mosaic Covenant. And Moses went up on top of Mount Sinai to get the terms of the covenant, the Ten Commandments. He was just getting the Ten Commandments from the Lord, and the children of Israel were already breaking the first and greatest of them all. You shall have no other gods before me. He hadn't even gotten off the mountain yet. They had broken the covenant. And that's how it would be with any of us. And thank God salvation does not depend on our faithfulness. It's all about His faithfulness. And when I put my faith in Christ, I am sealed in Him by the Holy Spirit until the day of redemption. And there's no way I can, nothing shall separate me from the love of, love of God, which is in Christ Jesus our Lord. Now unto Him who was able to keep you from falling. Falling how? Falling out of Christ and being lost. And to present you faultless before His presence with exceeding joy. It's all about Him. We're in good hands, folks. Uh, I don't care if you got Allstate or not. We're in good hands. We're in better hands. John 10, 10 tells us that we're in the Father and the Son's hands, and nothing is going to pluck us from His hands. So he's talking here about the nation of Israel, how they entered into an unconditional covenant. And even though they have strayed and they have turned their back on God for the most part, and today Israel for the most part is a secular nation, God has not forsaken His people, and He's going to restore them someday. Romans 11 talks about that. And so he's just reminding them of these awesome and great and precious promises that God gave to the nation. Let's keep reading. Verse 22, For Moses truly said to the fathers, The Lord your God will raise up for you a prophet like me from your brethren. Him you shall hear in all things whatever he says to you. Of course, that goes back to Deuteronomy 18 where Moses promised and prophesied that God was going to someday raise up a prophet like him, Messiah. You ask an Orthodox, Orthodox Jew today, why don't you believe Jesus is your Messiah? And they will tell you, because you Christians believe he's the Son of God. And Moses said he was going to be a prophet like me. Moses was a man. Well, you're emphasizing the wrong part of that. Moses was a man, but that wasn't what was going to be like him. Moses was a deliverer, raised up by God to deliver his people out of the bondage of Egypt, which is the type of the world. Christ would come as a deliverer to deliver us out of the bondage of sin and death. That's how they would be alike. Not that he would be a man just like Moses. He would be the God-man because that was also prophesied, that a virgin shall conceive and bear a son, and you shall call his name Emmanuel, which is translated God with us. 
way back in the Old Testament, God made many references to Messiah being more than just a man. The Pharisees and Sadducees were always trying to trap Jesus. And they thought they had him on a couple occasions, but he was just too smart for him. Then he turned the tables. He said, let me ask you this. Uh, the Christ, whose son is he? Is he the son of man or the you know, son of God? He's the son of man. He's going to be a man. Well, then how does David in the Spirit say of him, the Lord said to my Lord, sit here at my right hand until I make your enemies your, your footstool? How does David call him Lord if he's his son? Think about that. In a patriarchal society, the father never called the son Lord. Yet the Messiah was going to be the son of David. So how does David call him Lord in the spirit? Because he's more than just a man. He's going to be God incarnate. See? So he's recounting this, reminding them. For Moses has truly said to the fathers, the Lord will make, your God will raise up for you a prophet like me from your brethren. Him you shall hear in all things, whatever he says to you. And it shall be that every soul who will not hear that prophet shall be utterly destroyed from among the people. That was a, a prophecy. God's going to send a Messiah. And if you will hear him and receive him, he'll, you'll be saved. If you reject him and the words he speaks, you will be condemned. Your own, your own scriptures, Peter is saying, told you this. Verse 24, Yes, and all the prophets, from Samuel to those who follow, as many as have spoken, have also foretold these days. You are sons of the prophets and of the covenant which God made with our fathers, saying to Abraham, In your seed all the families of the earth shall be blessed. Now, he says, look, Samuel and all the prophets foretold of, the, of these days. What days? The day that Messiah would come and proclaim the word of God and offer the nation salvation. And he reminds them of the covenant which God made with their fathers through Abraham. And how that God said back in Genesis 3, uh, 12, verse 3, that in you, that is in your seed, all the nations of the earth shall be blessed. Now Israel thinks that that's a prophecy of the nation. That in Israel, all the families of the earth will be blessed. But Paul in Galatians chapter 3, verse 16 says, no, wait a minute. Now he doesn't say, and to seeds, plural, meaning Israel in general, but to your seed, singular, which is Christ. That in Christ... All the families of the earth would be blessed, not just the Jews. Jesus Christ is not just the Jewish Messiah and Savior. He is the Savior of the whole world. Because God loved the world so much that he gave his only begotten Son. That whoever believes in him would not have to perish, but have everlasting life. That's for everybody, not just for the nation of Israel. Yes, they were the channel through which Messiah was born. They were the ones who kept the oracles of God. And God blessed them for so meticulously writing down the scriptures and keeping them uh, you know, pure, and as they gave so much effort to, to, to recopying them, and the scribes put so much effort into that because they, they revered the Word of God so that we could have it today, passed down, uh, you know, authentically, and uh, we, we, we have confidence in its accuracy. But they were just the channel through which the blessings of Messiah would flow to the whole world, not just for Israel alone. Verse 26, To you first God, having raised up his servant Jesus, sent him to bless you, and turning away everyone from your iniquities. Look, to you first came the promises, of course. I mean, Messiah came to Israel first. Jesus said, the, the word of God says to the Jew first, and then to the Gentile, right? When Jesus sent his disciples out, two by two, he said, look, go first only to the lost sheep of the house of Israel. Because... They were the covenant people. 
They should have first dibs, okay? They should have the first opportunity to receive Messiah. And then through a redeemed Israel, they would spread the good news to the whole world. That didn't happen, of course. But that was the plan of God, that the Messiah would be a blessing to the whole world, to the nation of Israel. But they rejected their Messiah, even though Jesus came to them first, and the gospel came to the Jew first. They rejected it, and at one point, Jesus turned from the nation and began to minister to the Gentiles more and more because the Jewish people for the most part were not open. Now that's the sad condition of the nation and as Peter recounts the prophecies that are uh, were given to the nation he calls on them to repent. These promises cannot come to a wicked nation You've got to turn from your iniquities, every one of you. Now here's the thing. Nations can't repent. Nations cannot repent. People repent who live in those nations. So even though God gave promises to the nation of Israel, the nation is made up of individuals. That's why Peter pressed home to them the need for them personally to repent and to get their lives right with God. It's the only way the... the, uh, Messiah will return. In fact, Zechariah chapter 12, verses 10 through 14 is a very interesting prophecy about how the Messiah will not return to the earth until Israel, as a nation, begins to to call upon him. That won't happen until they are surrounded by their enemies and their backs are up against the wall and everyone, including America, has turned their back on Israel and they cry out to Jesus as God has begun to do a work in opening their eyes. They cry out that God would send the Messiah back. Jesus said, blessed, uh, you know, you will see me no more until you say, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. So you cry out and, uh, you know, that's when God will respond. They have, to, they have to raise their voices to God in supplication, asking God to send back Jesus, the one they killed. But now they realize is their Messiah. Now, as they spoke to the people, the priests, excuse me, as they spoke to the people, the priests, the captain of the temple and the Sadducees came upon them being greatly disturbed that they taught the people and priests in Jesus the resurrection from the dead. Well, yeah, they would be upset because, first of all, when Jesus was alive during his earthly ministry, the ones that gave him the most grief and persecution were the Pharisees. Because Jesus was always stepping on their rituals and traditions and so on and so forth. So they rose up and gave him the most opposition. Now that he's gone and the the apostles are preaching uh, the risen Christ and all, it's the Sadducees that rise to the top and become the dominant group that persecutes the apostles in the early church. Why? Because the Sadducees were the materialists and the liberals. Pharisees were the ultra-conservatives. But the Sadducees were the liberals and the materialists of their day. They did not believe in angels, in in the spirits, in miracles, and especially they did not believe in resurrection. And what are these guys preaching all over the place? That Jesus rose from the dead. They were uh, loyal to Rome, the Sadducees. They associated with the wealthy class, even though they were smaller in number by far than the Pharisees. The Pharisees were more of a grassroots common man's movement. Back to the Bible kind of a thing, because they were the conservatives. 
The Sadducees, though, were the minority, but they were in power because they were the wealthy class. They associated with the wealthy class. They were the aristocrats. They were the ones in charge of the temple. They owned the temple business, that uh, selling of animals and exchanging of money and so on that brought in a lot of money into the coffers. They, they were behind all that whole thing. And, 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 and what's more, they only accepted the Pentateuch, the five books of Moses as the word of God. So if you notice, whenever they came to Jesus and tried to trap him, he always quoted them from the first five books because they didn't accept anything else as the, being the inspired word of God. So he always quoted them out of the five books of Moses because that's all they received. And so Jesus always made them look foolish using their own ammunition, basically. They came upon Peter and John, greatly disturbed that they taught the people and preached in Jesus the resurrection from the dead. And they laid hands on them and put them in custody until the next day, for it was already evening. However, many of those who heard the word believed, and the number of the men came to be about 5,000. They didn't number women and children back then, so this could have been a total of eight to 10,000 or more people that had been converted just in this one message alone. On Pentecost, Peter preached 3,000 men plus women and children. So the church is really gaining momentum now. In fact, one of the sub-themes that runs throughout the entire book of Acts, in fact, the whole history of the church, is that the more Christians are persecuted, the more the word of God spreads and prospers and people get saved. These people try to stamp out these guys and try to uh, stamp out the movement, but it's, it's like trying to stamp out a campfire. The more you stomp on it, the more the embers go flying and start fires all over the place. And that's kind of how what the early church was. At one point... Uh, as we're going to see, they got so comfortable there in Jerusalem that God had to allow some persecution to scatter them because what did Jesus say? You're going to be my witnesses in Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria, and to the uttermost parts of the earth. Well, they were just sticking around Jerusalem. And the Lord said, okay, we're going to, get to have to have to move you on here a little bit. You're getting a little comfortable. And sometimes God will use trials in our lives to get us out of our comfort zone, to get us into new areas of ministry. Kind of, you know, kind of, and I really think he's been doing that in our church the last year or so. Uh, we've gotten so comfortable with, with each other. We've got so many wonderful people at places of ministry, but I think God wanted to spread them out. And so he's kind of taken people, moved them away, and it's hard. It's been hard for us to lose such wonderful core people that we've loved and served with for so many years. But I see it as a good thing. It's forcing us to look to new people to be raised up. And these folks are using their gifts in new situations, and so they're being a blessing in other churches. So it's a good thing, but it's hard sometimes to see that. Verse 5, And it came to pass on the next day that their rulers, elders, and scribes, as well as Annas the high priest, Caiaphas, John and Alexander, and as many as were of the family of the high priest, were gathered together at Jerusalem. Now let me just stop there. This is the official, an official meeting of the Sanhedrin. The Sanhedrin was the high, the supreme religious governing body of Israel. They also were a kind of a supreme court, in a sense, in civil matters as well. They kind of wore both hats, religious leaders, but also civil uh, leaders as well. And they gather a meeting of the Sanhedrin. This is the same body of guys that two months earlier, Jesus stood before, as they called him in at night. In fact, that was uh, really a shady whole deal it was at night the Sanhedrin it was illegal for the Sanhedrin to meet at night they met at night a man was not supposed to be tried for a capital crime at night 
It was a kangaroo court. They were a railroad Jesus. But now two, week, two months later, Peter and John are called into the same, to stand before the same group of men. Annas was the, the real high priest, the, the ones the people had elected from the family of Aaron. Rome didn't like him, so they replaced him with different high priests. In fact, all of Annas's five sons had served as high priests here and there. And now his son-in-law Caiaphas uh, was in power, but Annas was still the power behind the Caiaphas. He still kind of pulled the strings. It was a, it was the, the office of high priest had gotten so corrupt it just was passed around through different family members just to keep it in the family kind of a thing. Who were Alexander and John? We don't even know who they were. They were probably members of the high priest family. And so they all gathered together their Jerusalem. And when they had set them in the midst, they asked, By what power or by what name have you done this? Now, this was with, within their right, perfectly within their right. In fact, it was their responsibility as the governing religious governing body in Israel to guard against false teaching coming into the nation. And in Deuteronomy chapter 13, verses 1 through 5, God said, Look, if a prophet rises among you, and he does miracles, genuine miracles, but then teaches you to follow some other god, the Lord said you are to stone that individual. I'm testing you, God said, to see if you're going to be loyal to me. Don't get caught up with the supernatural, God was saying. Satan can perform miracles. It's the word. That's the most important thing. And if somebody does a miracle, you're not to be enamored by that. But you're to look past that and listen to what they're teaching you after the miracle because if it contradicts the word of God and misleads you into following false gods, then that person is to be stoned. So they were exercising their responsibility as religious leaders. A miracle had been done. And now this message of Christ being the Messiah, having risen from the dead, they had to determine if this was something that was genuine. But I don't think they really called Peter and John in to give them a, an honest hearing. I think that uh, it was, again, uh, they had an agenda, and they did not have a right to bring innocent men in and accuse them falsely without honestly examining the evidence. They, they didn't really do that. They didn't examine the evidence. They, they just wanted to, to condemn these guys. I love verse 8. Then Peter filled with the Holy Spirit. Now Peter is going to lay a bold, dynamic witness on this august group of men. Remember, two months earlier, Peter was afraid for his life, would not even go in with Jesus into this gathering of men, but stood out in Caiaphas's courtyard denying that he knew Jesus three different times. Now he's going to go in to this group of guys and he is going to lay a bold defense and witness on them. You say, what made the difference? It's in verse 8. Peter filled with the Holy Spirit. Last week, we looked at chapter 3, and as we studied the narrative, we said this chapter contains some wonderful qualities and characteristics that pertain to the men or the women that God uses. Peter is the focus. So he's the one that these qualities come through. Uh, as we, we study as they, they kind of you know, rise to the surface of Peter's life. Remember what we said first of all? The men that God uses are first of all men of prayer. Verse 1 of chapter 3, correct? Secondly, they are men of faith. Verse 
7, around uh, verse 7 of chapter 3, how this guy who was lame from his mother's womb was begging alms there by the beautiful gate of the temple. And Peter and John saw, the, saw him sitting there, and Peter says, Look at us. And the guy looked at them, held his hand out, looking to get a, a gift of money, you know. And Peter says, Look, we don't have any silver or gold, but what we do have we'll give to you. In the name of Jesus Christ, stand up and walk. And Peter didn't leave it there. He grabbed the guy by the right hand and actually pulled him to his feet. Well, that took a lot of faith, as we said last week. Now, again, if I was Peter, I'm thinking to myself, I hope this guy stands. I hope I'm hearing from God now. If this guy falls, I'm not going to look too good. But men of faith, right? Thirdly, the men that God uses are men that refuse to take any glory for themselves. And that comes through in verse 12. As the, men, as the people gathered to see who had done this to this lame man. And they saw this guy hanging on to Peter and John, probably kissing these guys. And especially Peter, everyone began to look at Peter like, who is this? This is someone special. This is a, who knows, this is a prophet. This is somebody that is really close to God. And Peter said, whoa, wait a minute. Don't think that this guy has been healed because of any godliness in me or any power that I have. It's all through Christ in his name. And that's the third quality that of the men or women that God uses. They will not receive glory for themselves for the work that God is doing. The fourth quality of the men that God uses are they are men of the word. They are men that know the word. Peter goes on to quote, starting in verse 23 through verse 25. Again, he just quotes freely from the scriptures. Peter knew the scriptures. Every time he preaches, he's just quoting from memory scriptures and applying them he was a man of the word and the fifth quality the fifth characteristic of the men or the women that god uses are that they are men or women that are filled with the holy spirit filled with the holy spirit now the word filled translates a greek verb that means was filled at that very moment as peter was obeying god and moving in the Spirit, wherever the Spirit was leading, every time a situation arose where he needed God's strength and fresh power, the Spirit refilled him. There is one baptism with the Holy Spirit. We saw that in the day of Pentecost, chapter 2. But all throughout the book, these men were constantly being filled. In fact, when Paul uh, in Ephesians 5 talks about, uh, you know, he admonishes us not to be drunk with wine, wherein is dissipation, but to be filled with the Holy Spirit. The Greek says, be continually being filled with the Holy Spirit. How is that possible? As you keep walking in the Spirit, yielding to the Spirit, surrendering to the Spirit, He'll keep filling you. You walk away from God, the Spirit will stop filling you. And the power will dry up. But here Peter, filled, and the word filled also has the idea of being controlled by Peter was being controlled by the Spirit because he was yielded to the Spirit. And as he was yielded, the Spirit gave him fresh power for every new situation. Here he needed fresh power to preach a dynamic message to this group of, of unbelievers who were the spiritual leaders of Israel. How sad is that? How sad is it to see a church that is run by an unbeliever, a religious unbeliever? That's a testimony of a lot of churches today. Now, you might say to yourself, you know, I've, every time I read the book of Acts, and I read how they were filled with the Spirit, and they preached with boldness, or they were filled with the Spirit, and they did miracles, or they were filled with the Spirit, and this happened, or they went over here and people were saved. Every time I read that, I ask God, Lord, fill me. 
And I've prayed and I've pleaded and I have asked God many times and I don't feel like God has filled me with his Holy Spirit. What, what gives? Well, maybe, just maybe, you don't need to be filled with the Holy Spirit as much as you need to be emptied from self. See, the Spirit of God can't fill a full vessel. Or he won't, I should say. If you're filled up with carnality and sin and rebellion and unbelief, the Spirit of God is not going to fill you with himself. You have to be emptied first. Say, well, how do I do that? You go back to verse 19. What did Peter say? Repent. Repent. And then times of refreshing will come from the presence of the Lord. And we said last week, we could apply that personally. Sure, it was to Israel, but we could apply that personally. Repent and be converted, he said. Your sins will be blotted out, and times of refreshing will come to you from the presence of the Lord. Well, when we repented the first time we were converted we got saved but as we have you know been christians for a while of course every day we blow it we have to keep repenting keep confessing our sins and as we do that it allows god to continually then cleanse us and then refill us with his holy spirit trouble is we kind of walk away from god at times kind of get back into some of the old habits and some of the old things that we shouldn't get into we break fellowship with God. We're no longer in fellowship. We're no longer asking for forgiveness. We're no longer repenting. And when that happens, the Spirit of God stops filling us. And then God can't use it. So it's important, very important. Peter, filled with the Holy Spirit, this is what made the difference in his life. He was a coward two months earlier. Saying, I don't even know the man. Now he's willing to die for Jesus because he's filled with the Holy Spirit. And he says, look, if, if we this day are judged for a good deed done to, the, to a helpless man by what means he has been made well, let it be known to you all and to all the people of Israel that by the name of Jesus Christ of Nazareth, whom you crucified, you always got to get that in there, whom you crucified, by whom God, uh, whom God raised from the dead, by him this man stands here before you whole. He first of all says, look, let's just get something straight here. Let me make sure I got this clear. You mean to tell me you dragged us into court because God used us to heal a lame man? Is that, I mean, is that why we're here? A little ridiculous, isn't it? Okay, but fine. You got us here. You want to know by what name we did these things? Let me tell you the name. It was through the name of him you crucified, your own Messiah, and who God raised from the dead. It's through his name. His power, by what authority, by what power? It's his authority. It's his power. We're his representatives. And it's all him. It's by his strength and power this man stands before you whole. He goes on to say, This is the stone which, which was rejected by you builders, which has become the chief cornerstone. Again, Peter quotes effortlessly from the Old Testament. He's just quoted from Psalm 118, verse 22, which is a messianic psalm. It's a psalm that is prophesying Messiah. And Peter says that scripture, the stone which the builders rejected, has become the chief cornerstone. That was talking about Christ. Now, there is a, um, a tradition, a story, and I, I, I don't know if it's, if it's actually true or not, but it's one I've heard uh, many times. There is a story that goes back to the time when Solomon was building the temple. And if you remember, out of reverence and respect for God, Solomon did not want any noise at the site where the temple was being built. No uh, uh, picks or shovels or chisels or hammers. 
no trowels to mortar you know, the stones. So all the stones were quarried off-site. And they were quarried with such precision. So you wouldn't even need mortar. And the idea was that the ones at the quarry had the architect's blueprints, you might say, and the foreman at the job site where the temple was being erected had a set of those same blueprints. And every time the foreman at the quarry would have a stone quarried and cut, he would number it, and then he would send it. And the foreman at the temple site knew exactly every stone, what number they were going to be, and so when a stone arrived, he knew exactly from the blueprints where that stone fit into the temple wall. Well, the story goes that at one point, a stone was, a stone was sent to the, to the temple site, and it wasn't marked. It didn't have a number on it. And the foreman looked at his blueprints, couldn't find where this thing fit. And so he figured it must be a mistake, and they just kind of tossed it on the side and left it there, forgot about it. Solomon's temple took, I think it was seven years to build. So in seven years' time, weeds and stuff had grown up around this stone, and it was forgotten about. Well, when the day finally came for the cornerstone to be fit into the temple, completing the structure, the foreman at the temple said, look, we're ready for the cornerstone. Will you send it up? The guy down at the quarry said, wait a minute, we've sent our record show, we've sent that a long time ago. Well, you know how that goes. The foreman at the job site said, no way, man, we didn't get it. You know, what are you trying to pull down there? Yeah, that kind of thing. They argued back and forth among themselves, and somebody said, well, wait a minute. I think I remember a stone that was sent years ago. It's over there in the bushes. So they ran and got the thing and dragged it up, and sure enough, it was the cornerstone. The stone which the builders rejected was actually the cornerstone of the entire temple. And Peter quotes that prophecy and relates it to Christ. In fact, Peter would go on to say in his first epistle, we are living stones being built together into a temple, the temple of God. Jesus Christ is the chief cornerstone. In other words, it all depends on him. You know, no other religion on the face of the earth depends on its founder to survive. On its teachings, maybe. Buddhism, Confucianism, Mohammedism. They all depend on the teachings of their founders, but not on them personally. Only Christianity depends on Jesus, his person, as much as his teachings. Without Christ, there is no Christianity. It's all built on him. You, know, you don't have to have Buddha. Uh, anyone could have taught what Buddha taught, or Confucius, or even Mohammed. Those religious systems do not depend on their founder to survive. Christianity is inextricably linked to its founder. Without Christ, we have no religion. So he is the chief cornerstone in that regard. And if you reject him, as Peter's going to go on to say, there is nothing left. There is salvation in none other. So you Jews, being the ones that God gave the privilege of accepting Messiah first, your own scriptures prophesied how you would reject the one upon whom the whole kingdom would be built. A temple of living stones. Those that would put their faith in him. Quite a statement. That's why Peter said in verse 12, Nor is there salvation in any other. For there is no other name under heaven given among men whereby we must be saved. It's all dependent on Jesus. He said, I am the way, the truth, and the life. Nobody comes to the Father except through me. Peter said it here. There is no salvation in none other. There is no other name given under heaven among men whereby we must be saved. 
Now, it's very sad that you have a group of religious men who think that they are right with God and are leading an entire nation into hell. But see, Jesus said there are two roads. There's a broad way and there's a narrow way. The broad way leads to destruction, and many are those that go down that road. The narrow road leads to everlasting life. Christ is the narrow road. Narrow in the sense that it's just he's the only way to, to, to heaven. The broad way, don't misunderstand what he's saying. The broad way is not marked this way to hell. The broad way is marked this way to heaven also. The broad way is not made up of, athe- of atheists and agnostics. It's made up of very religious people. It's just that these folks have a very wide and tolerant view of what it takes to get into heaven. And you've heard that. We're all taking different roads to get to the same place. Well, all those roads are actually one called the broad way. And there are people today that live, we live in a very pluralistic society, a very inclusive society, and we preach a very exclusive message. That's why we're hated. We preach Christ and Him crucified, the only way to the Father. And all other roads, we say we're very intolerant of Accepting because we know that those roads lead to hell. So Peter is just nailing these guys and just basically telling them that, look, you guys are, you've rejected your own Messiah. You killed him. It's not too late, though, to receive him this time. See, you rejected him. You killed him. You did it in ignorance. Remember chapter 3, brethren? You did it in ignorance. Peter was talking to the crowd in general of Jewish people. Now he's talking to the Jewish Supreme Court, the leaders, saying the same thing. You guys killed your own Messiah. It was all in God's plan. But if you reject him again, well, there's nothing left. You rejected him the first time and had him killed. Well, God planned for that. That wasn't God's plan. But if you want to go to heaven, you've got to receive him now. Because if you don't, there's salvation in none other. Now, when they saw the boldness of Peter and John and perceived that they were uneducated and untrained men, they marveled, and they realized that they had been with Jesus. Well, they make a couple of mistakes here, okay? The first mistake was to believe that these were were uneducated and untrained men. That just simply means they were not educated in uh, the Sadducees or the Pharisees' particular seminaries. But these guys had walked with Jesus, for three and a half years. I mean, they went to the master's seminary. I'll tell you what, I'd rather go to the master's seminary than any man's seminary. I wish I could walk with Jesus for three and a half years. Well, actually, we can walk with him, as we're going to see in a moment. But they walk with Jesus. They ministered with him. They lived with him. The teaching never stopped. In public, they heard him preach and teach the multitudes. But in private, they got their own private teaching as Jesus expanded or clarified some of the things that he had spoken earlier that day that the disciples didn't quite understand. For three and a half years, they walked with the master. These were not uneducated and untrained men. Peter had a better grasp of the scriptures than any of these guys did. These were very sharp men. And I'll tell you this, if it comes down to having a degree from a human seminary or having the anointing of the Holy Spirit upon your life for ministry, I'll take the anointing of the Holy Spirit any day. 
Because to see what's being pumped out of a lot of seminaries in this country today in the way of spiritual leaders is appalling and it's frightening. The Holy Spirit empowering a person who has received Christ is the only real authority that you need. Because once you're filled with the Spirit, once you're a believer and are filled with the Spirit, is you open the Word of God, the Holy Spirit teaches you about Jesus in a way that no seminary could ever teach you. And that's the second mistake they made. They, had, they realized that they had been with Jesus. That was a mistake. It's not that they had been with Jesus. He was with them right now. He said, Lo, I am with you always, even to the end of the age. The night before his crucifixion, he said, Look, i got to go away. And where I'm going, you can't follow me, not yet. But I'm not going to leave you alone like orphans. I'm going to send you another helper, another comfort, the Holy Spirit, who will abide with you forever, right? I will not leave you alone. I will come to you through the Holy Spirit. And so the Holy Spirit had filled them with Jesus, basically. He was also living in their heart. So he was with them. Isn't it awesome that we can walk with Jesus? Not only walk with him in a sense, but he's in us. And they were drawing their life and their strength from Jesus who was living his life through them through the power of the Holy Spirit. That's what it means to be a spiritual believer. Jesus Christ is continuing the work he began 2,000 years ago through our lives as we become like a glove through which God inserts his hand and be, keeps on doing the work that you know, Jesus began. That's what the whole book of Acts is about. As Luke began the book by saying, Theophilus, the former account, my gospel I gave to you of all that Jesus both began to do and teach, which he now continues through his church. And we are a part of that. So they were not uneducated and untrained. They had the best teacher in the whole world. And Jesus was not, had not been with them. He was with them at that very moment. And seeing the man, verse 14, who had been healed, standing with them, they could say nothing against it. Isn't that sad? Because it almost implies that the guy, they were looking for something to say against the truth. You know, it's just sad. You know, these guys are so hard-hearted. But you know what? They couldn't argue with a changed life. They could not argue with a man who had been lame for 40 years and was now walking. You can't argue against that, right? And I, and I said it last week, I'll say it again. There's nothing more powerful than a changed life to shut the mouths of the critics. I love Pastor Chuck's book entitled Harvest. He takes 10 Calvary Chapel pastors and just gives us a biography of their a quick biography of their lives before they receive Christ and then now after they have received him. We're talking drug addicts, drug pushers, criminals, violent men, antisocial behavior, psychotic behavior. Mike McIntosh so fried his brain so much in LSD that he was having LSD flashbacks. He was pronounced certifiably insane. He was written off. The psychiatrist couldn't help them, told his parents, forget you even have a son. There's nothing we can do for him. He's insane. There's, there's no hope for him. Friends bring him to Calvary Chapel. Here's the gospel. Accepts Jesus Christ. They say, if anybody wants to receive the baptism with the Holy Spirit, come on into the prayer room. Mike walks in there. They lay hands on him, the pastors. They pray over him. Mike says, I felt like a lightning bolt shot through my body. At that very instant, he said, I was completely healed from all the neurological damage done from dropping all that LSD. God restored my mind. Not only saved my soul, he restored my mind. And to see Mike go on from that point 
a few years later to pre to pastor one of the largest churches in America, preaching before 15,000, 20,000 people on various occasions, and people looking at a man like that going, How, what do you say about that? How can you deny that? How can you look at a man like that who was completely crippled from a sense that he was completely uh, unable to function uh, on a human level? And see, Jesus touched this man's life and completely not only restore him, but recreate him. Make him something that he could never have been on his own. That's a powerful testimony. The critics can say all they want against Christ, but when they see people that were lame in life and now are standing in the power of the Spirit and ministering in the power of God, it's amazing. They just cannot. What do they say? How can they deny it? But when they had commanded them to go aside out of the council, they conferred among themselves, saying, What shall we do to these men? For indeed, uh, for indeed, that a notable miracle has been done through them is evident to all who dwell in Jerusalem, and we cannot deny it. Why would you want to deny it? Just accept it. But so that it spreads no farther among the people, let us severely threaten them that from now on they speak to no man in this name. They, even, they won't even say Jesus' name. You know, as people have said, you know, if I, if I could just see a miracle, I'd believe. That's not true. Jesus did miracles all the time. And when it was all said and done, people that refused to believe hung him on a cross and crucified him. These men have just seen an incredible miracle by their own mouths. They can't deny it. They know a miracle has taken place. Yet is it compelled them to believe? No. Because believing is not a matter of the intellect. It's a matter of the heart and will. And if a person's heart is hard, if they refuse to believe, then it's not a matter of information. We think it's, we Christians think if they just had the information, if they could just see a miracle, that's great information to let people know that Jesus is real. A miracle won't force someone to believe who refuses to believe. It will encourage someone to believe that wants to believe and just looking for something to confirm why the Christian faith is true. But it will never force a person to believe who refuses to believe. The fool says in his heart, there is no God. Not in his head. It's a matter of the will. And so these guys are hard-hearted and they refuse to believe. Verse 18, so they called them and commanded them not to speak at all nor teach in the name of Jesus. But Peter and John answered and said to them, whether it is right in the sight of God to listen to you more than to God, hey, you judge. For we cannot but speak the things which we have seen and heard. Boy, there is quite a transformation that's taking place in Peter. Don't underestimate the power of the Holy Spirit working through the believer. That is the key to successful ministry. Information is great. We all need to study the Bible. But if it's not energized by the power of the Holy Spirit, it remains just head knowledge. And so Peter filled with the Spirit. Man, he's a changed man. He's a changed guy. He's gone from coward to conqueror. I mean, uh, it's amazing. And you just can't explain a transformation like that in two months unless God's involved in that. But I want you to just notice one other thing quickly. They are really going against the will of their leaders. The leaders have basically told them that by law they are not to preach anymore in Jesus' name. And now they're 
saying, look, we don't care what you say. We have to obey God rather than men. So we're going to disobey your law. That's civil disobedience. Now, we Christians are commanded to respect and obey the laws of our, of our nation because God wants us to be good citizens. And this is all through the New Testament. But the only time we are to violate man-made laws is if those laws go against something God has told us to do or if they, if, in other words, if they um, forbid us from doing something God told us to do or they tell us to do something God has forbidden us to do, then we obey God and not men. And then we have a God-given mandate to be civil, civilly disobedient. But otherwise, we are to be law-abiding. We are to pay our taxes, Paul tells us. Peter says we are to be good citizens because it's a good witness. And that's the way it is. But there may come a time in our country's history, and it may be coming soon, when things will begin to turn. And it will become illegal in Canada right now for a pastor to speak out against homosexuality from the pulpit. Even quoting the scriptures could land him in jail. That's coming here. And if it comes here, I have to obey God rather than men. I have to speak what God has said, and I'll have to take the consequences. But we have to obey God rather than men. So... Peter is just flat out saying what needed to be said here. So when they had further threatened them, they let them go, finding no way of punishing them because of the people, since they all glorified God for what had been done. For the man was over 40 years old whom this miracle of healing had been performed. 40 years old. That's an awfully long time to wait for a healing. Think about that. I'm wondering how many years this man prayed for a healing and then how many years it's been since he prayed at all because he just gave up hoping. Sometimes we pray for things and, and maybe we're not praying for 40 years um, but there's a lot of times we're praying for things and God is just not answering and they're good things. We're praying for loved ones to be saved. We're praying for different things to happen. Revival to come to our nation, and so on. And these things are not taking place, and we give up sometimes. We lose heart. But God is listening to all the prayers of his saints. And God waited for the exact right moment when he would receive the most glory for this miracle. And God is a time for everything. There is a, a, a time for every purpose under heaven. And when God says it's time, God will begin to move. And when it's time and God begins to move, he often moves very quickly. Abraham waited 25 years for God to fulfill his promise to him that he would have a son. And I don't know what you've been praying for, whether it's to have a child, maybe your womb has been closed, uh, or maybe you have a child, but that child has turned his or her back on God, or maybe you have an unbelieving spouse, or maybe you have a physical infirmity or something. And you've been praying, and you've been praying, and God hasn't seemed to be responding, and so now you're feeling like he doesn't care or it's never going to happen. Don't give up. Because oftentimes God's just waiting for the right moment to answer that prayer. So keep on praying. He waited 40 years, but God eventually healed him. Now, it says that being let go, they went to their own companions and reported all that the chief priests and elders had said to them. So when they heard that, they raised their voice to God with one accord and said, Lord, you are God who made heaven and earth and the sea 
and all that is in them. Here they were threatened by the Sanhedrin. We're talking the, 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 the supreme governing council of the host nation. Threatened with bodily harm if they didn't stop preaching in Jesus' name. They went home and they had a call for a prayer meeting. And they begun the prayer meeting by saying, Lord, you are God who made heaven and earth and the sea and all that is in them. That's a great way to start your prayer, by the way, because it reminds you of who you're praying to. It reminds you of the awesomeness of God. You see, sometimes we get so close to our problems and they, they loom so big in front of us that we lose all objectivity and we begin to lose heart because the situation looks hopeless. Yeah, from a human standpoint, it might be. That's why we need to come in to the presence of God and remind ourselves of how great and awesome God is. Remember when Jeremiah was feeling a little overwhelmed by the things going on in his life and the ministry God called him to, and he began to lose heart? And he began to pray, and the Lord spoke to Jeremiah and said, Jeremiah, remember me, I'm the Lord. Nothing is too hard for me. Don't forget that. See, and these guys are basically reminding themselves. God knows. God has got no identity crisis. God knows who he is. He knows he's great. He knows he created the heavens and the earth and everything that's in it. He knows all that. You don't have to remind God of that. Lord, remember you did all that? No, I, I remember. I'm, I'm God. Remember me? You know, I, I, I'm not, you know, I know who I am. The problem is you forget who I am. That's why you've got to remind yourself who I am and how great I am. That's a good thing to do every time we pray, by the way. So... Lord, you alone are God who made heaven and earth and the sea and all that is in them, who by the mouth of your servant David have said, Why do the nations rage and the people plot vain things? The kings of the earth took their stand and the rulers were gathered together against the Lord and against his Christ, for truly against your holy servant Jesus, whom you anointed both Herod and Pontius Pilate with the Gentiles and the people of Israel were gathered together to do whatever your hand and your purpose determined before to be done. What are they doing? They're saying, Lord, you are awesome. You are great. You created everything in the universe. And Lord, you even prophesied a thousand years ago through your servant David that the Christ was going to be persecuted, that the nations of the world would be gathered against him. Well, of course, during Jesus' earthly ministry, that was a partial fulfillment of that prophecy out of Psalm 2. There's coming another time when the whole world is going to gather against the Lord when he returns to the earth. Can you imagine the Antichrist will have such a deceptive way about him and he will be able to so thoroughly deceive people that he will be able to actually talk the nations of the world into going to battle against the Lord. And that's what ultimately that prophecy is talking about. Why do the nations rage and the heathen imagine a vain thing? It's a vain, stupid thing to think you can go to war against God. How deluded does a person have to be to think that they can gather together with the armies of the earth in their tanks with their, you know, surface-to-air uh, to missiles, you know, and all, and, and their, their F-16s or whatever they're flying nowadays, and actually go to war against God? And, and, and what does God do? He who sits in the heavens shall laugh and mock them. And when Jesus returns, all these armies gathered together against him, they won't even be able to fire a rocket. He's going to just wipe them all out with the sword that proceeds out of his mouth, cast them all into the lake of fire. Because you can't fight against God. Woe unto him who strives with his maker. Surrender. 
to the one who loves you, the one who died for you. Receive him as your Lord and Savior. Don't fight against God. You're not going to win. Surrender. So, Lord, you knew all about this. I mean, this was all according to your plan. These people gathered together of their own free will to, to, to reject and to kill your Messiah. But, Lord, you had it all in your plan. It was all prophesied about a thousand years ago. Now, Lord. Now, here's where they get, they get into the petition. All this time has been just reminding them of God's greatness. Worship, praise. We should always start our prayers with a little worship and praise. Even if it's just, God, you created everything. You are awesome. Nothing is hard for you. Now, Lord, here's my little problem. That kind of sets the say, it kind of gets everything in perspective. Now, Lord, look on their threats and grant to your servants that with all boldness we may speak your word. Notice how different the mindset is among these apostles and disciples than what we see today. We get a little verbal persecution. We're right away running to God going, Lord, make them stop. Make them stop, Lord. You know, take them away. Take me away. Get me out of this situation. I can't handle this job anymore. And, and they didn't pray for that. They said, Lord, grant us boldness so we can hang in there and keep preaching your word. Man, you can't stop people like this. If you have... Disciples like this, there is no way the world can stop. People that are sold out are willing to die. Just give me boldness that I can go out with commitment, Lord. And I can glorify you. And, and that's what these guys, they were dead. They were dead to themselves and all they wanted was to glorify the Lord, whether in life or in death. 